And there's nothing wrong with being reverent about travel, but to be overly reverent about travel and turn it almost into a religion means you run into some of the same problems that you run into with a religion, which is that there are always going to be there are always going to be people who say that other people are doing it wrong. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Spud Hilton, who for years was the travel editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Now he's the host of a podcast called The Inappropriate Traveler, which is about, quote, the messy, fun, and naughty side of travel. In essence, Spud and his guests talk about things like mistakes and misadventures, about sex and partying and other topics that most travel media shy away from talking about, even as those things are a significant aspect of many people's travel experiences. You know, at one point in our interview, Spud pokes fun at how earnest people are when they travel the old pilgrimage road to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and it reminded me of what I've read about the original era of pilgrimage to Santiago and Canterbury and Rome and Jerusalem back in the Middle Ages. At one level, those medieval pilgrims were very earnest, but they were also traveling away from home, usually for the first time in their lives. And if you study the medieval pilgrim tradition, you'll find that these travelers of old tended to get drunk and have sex and make novice travel mistakes that feel kind of familiar a thousand or so years later. In short, travelers have always been inappropriate, even as they pretend not to be, and this dynamic is at the core of what Spud Hilton and I talk about today. We talk about dating apps like Tinder and how they've affected the way people travel. We talk about the difference between reputed party towns like Las Vegas and New Orleans and what sets those two places apart. We talk about whether or not the legendary Mile High Club even exists anymore, and we talk about the train version of the Mile High Club called the Clickety Clack Club. We also discuss the strangely reverent tone with which travel is discussed, not just in traditional media, but among bloggers and social media influencers as well. In short, we talk about how the way people talk about travel is often a lot different than how they travel in practice. A reminder, if you've been enjoying this podcast, to please subscribe and leave a friendly review at your favorite podcasting service. I always forget to remind people about that, but it's a useful way to help new people find this podcast, which, as always, is brought to you by Tortuga, the backpack brand used on my most recent inappropriate travels through South and Southeast Asia. I know the holidays are coming up, and Tortuga packs make great gifts for the traveler in your life, even if that means it's just a gift to yourself. Check out a variety of their backpack models at rolfpotscom Tortuga, and if you see a pack you like, you can get 10% off your order at checkout by using the promo code DEVIATE. This episode is also brought to you by Airtrex. For almost 30 years now, Airtrex has enabled all manner of appropriate and inappropriate travel by specializing in multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding-style journeys. Check out their trip planning tools at Airtrex.com. But for now, please listen in as Spud Hilton and I talk about the kinds of travel topics, things like sex and misadventure and debauchery that traditional travel media tends to avoid. I know you uh, as a writer and editor at the San Francisco Chronicle for, for years uh-huh. and years, uh, and, but now you have a new podcast called The Inappropriate Traveler, and I, and I just love the concept of The Inappropriate Traveler because in a way it feels like it enables you to say all the things you couldn't quite say as a San Francisco Chronicle writer. So so my listeners have an understanding of what it's all about. Explain The, the, the Inappropriate Traveler to me. Well, I think... One of the main things about it is that about a third of all travel podcasts out there are Disney-based, and there's nothing wrong with that. Clearly, there's a lot of fans of Disney. The great majority of the remaining two-thirds is all very reverent about travel, and it's all very earnest and sincere and nice, and there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just that I get the feeling, and this might be something we delve into a little bit more, I get the feeling sometimes that travel is a religion. It's a church almost, and you have your prophets of it, uh, you know, between Pico Iyer and, you know, Paul Thoreau and those guys, and you have your sacred texts of it. You have, you know, Walk in the Woods and, you know, Anything by Jan Morris. And there are all these things, and there's nothing wrong with being reverent about travel. But to be overly reverent about travel and turn it almost into a religion means you run into some of the same problems that you run into with a religion, which is that there are always going to be there are always going to be people who say 
that other people are doing it wrong. Or there's always going to be people who judge, no, 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 my way to pray in, in the church of travel is better than yours. Or there's always going to be people who just don't have a sense of humor about it. And what I'm trying to do is to say, listen, irreverence is a good thing. Questioning, you know, the holy church in this case is a good thing. Having a little fun with it and, uh, and saying, you know what, there are no holy texts. Uh, it's, it's travel is a great thing that we should all enjoy. And some people enjoy it differently. And that's okay. Well, I think I wrote a book that has sort of become a part of that holy body of work, uh, vagabonding. People take it very earnestly, which is great. I, I love hearing from earnest travelers. But sometimes I'll hear from people who said, whatever happened to that girl you talk about hooking up with and vagabonding? And it's like, what? And it's like, oh, yeah, the Hungarian archaeologist. And it's like, well, that's in reference to the English patient, you know? And so I think right. people people know that travel involves things like partying and hooking up, and they assume that, you know, probably rightly, that I, I've also indulged in that sort of thing. But um, my, my very earnest text, sometimes people read uh, sort of a sexual or a party valence into it that it doesn't even have, right? So it's like people right. people know that this is a part of travel, but they only talk about it in a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of way. Um, right. And so uh, I'm, I'm curious you know, just about how, actually, I have a theory about about this approach to travel, and that's that we all start out as inappropriate travelers. You know, 25 years ago, I did my first vagabonding trip. I lived in a van. It was van life before hashtag van life. And I reread my journal, right. and I was always staying up till dawn. I was doing stuff that I can no longer do. Like, I was having, I was embracing traveler like a 23-year-old should embrace travel. And I think we never fully out grow the student slash young traveler that we were um, in, in several ways that we we never stop having sort of inappropriate, for lack of a better word, fun as travelers. And we never stop making mistakes. We never stop being fools as travelers. So it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like your podcast is sort of embracing that side of travel and admitting that we never fully outgrow that kind of travel. I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, you might be assigning a little more thought than I actually put into it, <laughs> but but yes, I could see where I could see where that would fit well, uh, and it could be that that was my entire you know or some portion of my my motivation. I think it's interesting you talk about the sort of growing into your travel, uh, the stuff you do at twenty three, and then the stuff you do later, is because I didn't really have the stuff you do at twenty three. Honest to God, my my folks were were broke, but we had relatives all over the country. So we jammed the six of us, my three brothers and I and my parents into a van and we drove to Colorado or we drove to Wisconsin or we drove to to Florida. So there was a bit of an adventure and that was fine. But that was when I was a little kid. Uh, I didn't really I mean, by the time I got to the San Francisco Examiner, which eventually you know, became the San Francisco Chronicle. I had traveled to all of three countries, including this one. I had just not traveled. And it was when I sort of discovered the power of travel writing by being on the copy desk and reading some of this stuff that I said, I, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of being able to tell people about great, great places, none of which had I been to. So what it meant is that when I eventually did start going to these places, it was, I was already in my late 20s, early 30s, and I was doing it as a job. So I never really got to indulge in the whole stay, until, stay up until dawn type of thing, because for me, it, it started out, for the most part, as a job. Now, granted, it was a job I really, really liked, but it was a job. And so I might have a different approach having looked at travel from a different way than everybody sort of growing into it. Well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, maybe my observation about young travel, uh, you know, that young, young people mode of travel is something you haven't really considered from the podcast perspective. So what, what is your podcast perspective? Just, just off the cup, keeping keeping in mind that you don't really have a, 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 a methodology or, or theory behind it, off the cuff, what kind of things do you seek out when you interview people for your podcast? Well, I think, 
I think the the phrase that we use at the beginning of every episode is uh, the fun, messy, naughty side of travel. And I think that encompasses a lot there. I mean, fun is is a vague word, and everybody's got a different idea of fun. The messy side is, you know what? Shit goes wrong. Things go sideways. And that's part of the stuff that actually makes travel great is when things get messy. And people don't talk about that side as much because they want to be able to talk about, yet again, how magical Paris is. And that's fine. And then there's the naughty side, whether it's, uh, you know, like I say, hookups on the road, hangovers on the road, uh, you know, ridiculous situations, you know, in, in a really bad idea uh, in a bad town, in a bad bar with really bad beer that ends up being the greatest night of your life. So those are the things I'm sort of, you know, trying to, trying to find is the topics that most people aren't covering and then some really good stories to go along with them. And what kind of stories have you been turning up? What kind of things have people been admitting to? Well, it's, it's been interesting because uh, two things have happened. One is that I have a number of people coming on who, you know, who want to be on the show. A number of people said, oh, you know, I think, I think I'd be great on your show. Uh, you know, it's, it, it'd be a lot of fun. It looks like some fun. And I'm like going, have you listened to it? Because my impression of you is that you might be a little too appropriate for this show. <laughs> but what, I, what I'm also running into is, is people who are willing to say things that, they've, you know, that they don't tell anybody else. And that's the type of content that I love. Now, it helps that we're, we're usually drinking while recording this thing. But some of the stories, uh, you know, we started on the first one with, with uh, fly brother Ernest White II. Uh, who's, who's been on this uh, podcast right and and on this one he was you know I, I specially tasked him with talking about uh hookups one night stands on the road and he he probably he probably had one of the more interesting stories i can imagine uh which is that he was basically short of money to get out of cuba when he needed to get out of cuba and, you know, he was a lot younger, really good-looking guy, you know, very attractive gay man. And he, um, he went down to the Malacon, certain portion of that waterfront plaza, and uh, actually seriously considered what the, what the opportunities might be with some of these European tourists to indulge in a little, how shall we say, pay-for-play. <laughs> and, and as it turns out, he, he didn't, he met a, he met another guy, uh, but he let that guy sort of take the, the sunburnt German tourist off, uh, and, and make some money. And he basically sold a bunch of his crap and that's how he got out of town. But, but to have somebody sort of admit, yeah, I was, I was willing to engage in prostitution in order, <laughs> you know, to, to get out of this place was, was a, was a nice little revelation. We, we got a guy um, named Joel Riddell, a radio guy in San Francisco who's been, you know, in food and travel for a long time. And he's just a, he's a kick in the pants and he's a lot of fun and he's definitely not overly reverent. And uh, he, he tells this story about being in Bethlehem uh, with a guide and the guide, you know, they, they go down to, you know, the supposed spot where, you know, the manger was. And his guide says, well, let me take a picture of you. And go go stand over in that general area, and he wasn't really paying attention. So he he sat down at this spot, and people started getting very agitated, and they pointed out to him he was he his butt was planted on supposedly the birthplace of Christ, and <laughs> and this whole idea of just sort of wandering in and plunking down on this super reverent you know religious icon. Uh, was kind of hilarious. You know, Chris McGinnis at some point uh, stumbled on uh, a gay porn shoot someplace where, where they were, I believe it was actually San Francisco. So it wasn't as much a travel situation, although he had friends with him from out of town. And and the whole situation with that, and he, he also talks about how his um, his husband had to be stopped at TSA because they thought he 
might have some very, very large marital aid in his carry-on bag that turned out to be a Portuguese sausage. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, we... Uh, I, I, you know, Pam Mandel well, and you know, she's wonderful. And, uh, you know, trying to get her to sort of come out of her shell was interesting, but she revealed something, not even so much about herself, but it was still something I had never heard anywhere else, which is that she had talked to some concierges uh, on some tour in Seattle and found out that a lot of, a lot of cannabis tourism goes on in Seattle. People come into town, they, they you know, park in the hotel, they go to the, the, the pot shop, they get their freak on, and when they realize that they can't take any of the extra home, either by plane or by crossing a state line, even to another cannabis state, because it's a federal crime, they leave it at the hotel. So basically, you probably have this giant stash at this hotel, or, or the you know, the housekeeping staff is really, really happy at, at Seattle hotels is what I, the only thing I could figure. And that was, that was a revelation to me. I had not heard anywhere else. I think that's what I'm, I'm shooting for is I want to hear the stories and the topics that I'm just not hearing anywhere else. I wonder if this might be a little bit market driven that the sensitivity that we have about which travel stories get told, at least the ones with certain gatekeepers is tied into it just a general concern ab about whether or not we're telling the right stories. Because I went on a magazine assignment about 10 years ago uh, for a San Francisco-based magazine, and they it, it was it's a far if you know a far. Do you know their spin the globe feature? Uh -huh. Sure. They spun yeah. they spun the globe. They sent me to St. Petersburg. I landed in St. Petersburg. I was completely jet lagged. I was wandering around the city in the middle of the night. I met these Russians who were great, and we we started partying, and so. Basically, for the three or four days I was in St. Petersburg, I was sleeping all day and up all night. And in February in St. Petersburg, if you're up in the middle of the night, you're partying, right? And Russians know right. how to party. And so basically, I, I turned this story about exactly what I did when they flew me around the world. And, and jet-laggedly, I walked around and partied with these wonderful Russians. And, they're, and the editor, you know, up the editorial chain, they're sort of like, well – you know, this sort of reinforces stereotypes about Russians being heavy drinkers and Russians being big partiers. And it's like, have you guys been to Russia? You know, have you been there in the, <laughs> in the middle of the night? And it's like, it's it's literally spin the, the globe. And I, I don't want to bag on a far. This is just a very specific and frustrating situation where it's like, you guys spun the globe, you sent me to this place, and this is what happened, you know? It wasn't like I was out trying yeah. to find my way into St. Petersburg through the bottom of a bottle, but I actually had a really charming time with some really delightful and charming Russians. And this is literally what happened. So I'm curious if, and maybe... You know, San Francisco has a, maybe a stereotype for being a little bit oversensitive when trying to, you know, portray stories of other cultures. But do you think that this is sort of a gatekeeper thing that some of us are sort of scared to talk about what really happens when we travel? Well, I, I think that's got to be to some extent, because, I mean, you look at you look at guys like Tim Cahill, the great Tim Cahill, who we both know on a first name basis. And who's, who's also been on my podcast. Right, right, exactly. But if you look back at his older stories, his, most of his books are anthologies of magazine articles that he wrote for one thing or another. And you look back at some of them, and there's the one about Hold the Enlightenment that's basically about going to write a story for Yoga Journal that if you don't laugh out loud within the first two paragraphs, you're either dead or insane. I mean, it, it's, it is just absolutely balls to the walls, uh, hilarious, as are a lot of these things. And a lot of the time he gets in some form of trouble. Some of it is, you know, probably self-induced, but he talks about some, being with some family in South America somewhere while waiting for his car to be fixed for several days because they keep telling him manana, which pretty much in a lot of Latin cultures means maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Um, but he's he's hanging out with this family, and at some point they bring out, I believe it's a Hugo de Kenya, uh, something along those lines. It's basically a, a sugar-based alcohol that will, you know, that will not only get you really, really drunk really fast, but possibly make you insane. And he's 
he talks about just getting hammered and waking up the next morning just barely and all these things. And it's like, well, yeah, these stories are, are from 70s and the 80s, maybe a few in the 90s. And he didn't have any problem telling these stories. But there seems to be a reverence, again, coming back to the whole sort of church of travel thing. That, And I'm, I'm starting to write a, a column on that particular topic. But the church of travel thing, I think there's a reverence that's driven in part by people wanting to wanting to be just, they want to have that transformative thing that they hear so much about. They want to live like a local. And they, I don't know if it's backlash from the ugly American of, you know, 30 years ago or whatever it is, but there just seems to be on the, on the consumer side, this move towards, you know, more reverence, at least within, uh, within travel publishing, that's the stuff they're consuming. The other side of it is that and this is something I'm, I'm actually literally today writing a speech on, is that on the PR tourism and marketing side, uh, it is against their inclination to make fun of themselves. It's against their inclination to give you the weird, quirky, and wild side of their place. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat down with some rep at what we used to, you know, one of these media marketplaces where it's like speed dating. You sit down with a different destination rep for about 10 to 15 minutes. And they ring the bell and you go to the next one. And I'm sitting there and I listen to them give their bullet points. And then I, I reserve the last three minutes and say, listen, last three minutes is mine. You need to tell me the three most bizarre, quirky, or weird things about your destination. And they'd look at me like I, I don't know, like I'd kick sand in their face or something. And then they'd think about it and they'd think a little more. And then they would come up with these three things that were far more interesting than anything else they had told me. And what that told me is that the default is not to tell you the strange and weird and wild. The default is to tell you that there's a hotel renovation that cost $20 million and that all the sheets there now have 800 thread count Egyptian sheets and Egyptian cotton sheets. And that's fine, except I don't care about that. I just don't. The weird, you know, bizarre things are something that I can hunt out and work around and find a great story that involves that. Uh, or it's the type of thing that actually people are much more likely to read. But it's not the default of PR tourism and marketing to go there. So now you have both both sides of that equation. The people who are selling travel and the people who are buying travel, uh, especially those who are reading Lonely Planets, you know, I want to be like a local, and Airbnbs, I want to be like a local. And, and they're, now both sides of that equation are starting to feed each other's reverence for this stuff because nobody's writing about the weird stuff. I think that there, there really is you, – you can't even blame one party for this because I think we, we've always talked about travel in a way that differs from how we actually travel. You know, we'll, we'll spend a right. week just being a complete fool and making all these horrible mistakes, some of which lead to wonderful experiences, and then we'll smooth it out narratively in, in reverse. And so like that's really sad, the idea that, uh, that these these entities don't want you to make fun of yourself because it feels like – the best stories, and, and in a way, the truest stories are the ones where you go in in the manner of Tim Cahill, and you make fun of yourself in a way that's very true. Absolutely, and I, I think that's one of the things that tends to be missing from uh, from. I don't again. I don't want to blame anyone's generation because I'm not one of those "Hey, you kids, get off my lawn" type of guys. Actually, I am, but not on this particular <laughs> topic. But but you have you have uh, an increasing number of bloggers who didn't come up as storytellers they came up as travelers first then writers and then you have an increasing number of influencers hmm. and in a lot of cases neither neither of those two groups are self tend to be self-effacing whether it's because of their age range their typical age range 
or because of the platform or for what, or because they didn't come up as storytellers. They came up as travelers who figured out that if I took more Instagram photos of myself, I could travel more, uh, you know, for whatever reason that self-effacing nature seems to be, uh, seems to be disappearing even more than if, than because of the reasons we already stated. I think I think that influencer world is really it deals in the platonic ideals of how travel should be. You know, the the idea that there's a you go to a given place and there's a, an experience that should be had or could be had or might theoretically be had there and that's sort of what is performed in social media when when all of the the self-evasing wonderful horribleness of travel doesn't come through. And it feels like it, with influencers especially there's a lot of travel influencers who project sexiness but not sex, you know? Like the, right. there's there's this idea that these extraordinarily good-looking people are occupying empty beaches, but there's no there's no sense for whether or not, you know, actual romance is happening. It's it's all it's all implication. Um, and so I'm wondering if even, and I want to get to sex in more detail in a, in a second, but I'm wondering if sex is even something that can <laughs> Any be time with you, Ralph. <laughs> right? Sure. Well, yeah, it's something that, again, that, that, that people read into travel, even when you're not writing about it, it's, it's something that people project onto travel in, in, in a way that I think is true. Um, but I wonder if, if, if there's just an idea of people giving themselves permission to write about sex. I, I mean, a couple of the examples that you gave of guys that you've interviewed are, are gay men. Um, including Ernest, who's a fantastic storyteller, but oh, absolutely. Uh, but as a as a straight guy who also travels, I think there's a little bit of self censorship because you don't want, and by you I mean me, you don't want to seem somehow callous in in sort of uh, you know cross gender sexual encounters. Like in in that Russian experience I wrote about for Afar, I, you know, I wrote it was about drinking. Well, I also made out with a Russian girl, and she wasn't a stereotypical like diva Russian girl with all cheekbones and, and knee-high boots. She was sort of a chubby, nerdy Russian girl. It was fun, but I censored myself because I just didn't want to deal with that idea that people are would wonder about my motives and that they would wonder about who she was and, and just exactly what the power dynamic was there. And I just wonder if it's even possible to write in an honest way about travel and sex these days. Well, and, and you, you basically caught me. Uh, I purposely had Ernest, a beautiful gay man, uh, talking about hookups and one night stands instead of having a straight man talk about it. Mm. I purposely went there because I could either have a woman do it and she would be able to tell about this, except that, she would be judged more harshly uh, in the way that our society does. Is if you're a man who has a lot of sex, well, that's great. You know, more power to you. Uh, you know, good job. Uh, if a woman has a lot of sex on the road, she's you know a slut or promiscuous. But by having a gay man on uh, and talking about that, I specifically went for the only real option I had for having us address the issue. And the and the great thing about Ernest was not only that he had some some really fun kind of period interest stories that were, were you know great, but he's also so well spoken and so well you know educated that he was able to. When I asked, I said, "What is the deal about people being more likely to say hook up on the road?" And oh my God, he went into this very scholarly thing that made perfect sense. Uh, you know, it was a number of things. It was about the. You know, the going outside your comfort zone and uh, going to places where you're a stranger and so people don't judge you because they don't know you, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it was a whole thing. And I was really glad we had him do it because, again, you're absolutely right. There's, uh, there's, so, many, there's so many judgments one way or the other about, about sex that there's only so many people you can have talk about that, especially to the extent we were having him talk about it. Because uh, we've, you know, we're we're trying to have fun with this, and uh, we're also trying to, you know, hit some topics. But like I said, we're trying to hit topics that nobody else deals with, and that just happened to sort of be one of them. Yeah, well, I, I think sex is something. You know, we talk a lot about bucket lists these days. <laughs> nobody really talked about bucket lists ten or twenty years ago. But sex is sort of the part of people's bucket list when they travel that they don't really 
literally put on their bucket list. They they like the idea of having, if not sex, like romance. They like the idea of having a romantic experience overseas. And I remember when I was living in Thailand and writing Vagabonding years ago, I would sometimes go to uh, the Atlanta Hotel in Bangkok. Do you know the Atlanta Hotel? I I, I am not a Bangkok guy. I've, I would love to see it. I've never been. It's terrific. It's sort of a it's sort of a budget hotel sort of a fancy hotel for backpackers. It doesn't cost much. The rooms aren't that nice, but it has a pool and a great restaurant and stuff like that. And for some sure. reason, whenever I go to the Atlanta hotel, traveler girls, traveler women would flirt with me in ways that they wouldn't flirt with me elsewhere in Thailand. And I couldn't figure it out until finally I realized that these were a bunch of women and I don't want to generalize, but they were, they were about to go home, you know? And, and so uh. I think that there's some women who they just wanted one last they hadn't crossed romance off their list, and so they were sort of putting out their feelers for maybe a little bit of romance in the last 36 hours in Bangkok. And so, and that's just something I perceived as a guy. I'm sure that there's an equivalent, and I'm sure guys are a lot more ham-fisted about how they approach sex as travelers. Oh, yeah. But it, it feels like something that is part of what everybody or what many people desire as travelers, but people don't literally talk about it. They don't put it on their bucket list, even though it is on their bucket list. Well, you have to imagine that somewhere there's, there are people for whom their bucket list is some, you know, list of, you know what? I'd really like to sleep with a redhead in Russia. Yeah. I'd really like to, you know, I'd really like to, you know, get laid in Ireland because, you know, I've heard wonderful things about Irish girls or whatever. And and it's it's ridiculously shallow and crass and all the other things you want to say about something like that. But you got to know there's somebody somewhere for whom that's their bucket list. I mean, it's uh, you, all, all it takes is being in any town where all of the British and Irish stag parties go to know that somebody's got to have that bucket list. I mean, I was in Riga, Latvia, which is a, a town absolutely known for, uh, you know, the British stag parties coming in because it's cheap. It's cheap. It's not that far away. They can drink themselves silly, uh, per, you know, try to imagine to themselves that they're going to get laid. And, and you know, it's that's their goal is to, you know, drink themselves silly and try to get laid and then get back out of town. And, you know whether or not you decide to call that travel is 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 up to you. Uh, is up to each individual of whether or not that's uh, you know any sort of legitimate travel. But my whole premise is I don't get to decide what is legitimate travel. I'm not the high priest of the Church of Travel, so it's pretty much whatever anybody seems to think. I think Bill Bryson was probably. Uh, was probably the, one, among the first ones to say pretty much the second you step outside your front door, uh, you have some basis for calling what you do after that travel. I think I think the, the, the kind of travel you point out is something that's a little bit subtler in Europe because in the U.S. we have fewer foreign destinations for that sort of meathead party travel. You know, there's there's Can right. Cancun or some all-inclusives in the Dominican Republic or Jamaica or something like that. Whereas there's a couple dozen places in Europe where where people sort of mindlessly go to party. And it, it, it occurred to me that I think a lot of the hookups, be they happen in Riga or they happen in Bangkok, are often not the, these complicated semi-compromised situations where you're hooking up with a local and you're worried about the power dynamic and the economic dynamic. But it's like hooking up with an Irish person in Cambodia, you know, or, or meeting somebody from Idaho in Uruguay and having a romance with them there. And so right. I, I think that a lot of dynamic, a lot of the dynamic that happens, it, it, people assume that it's you're in, you're in the country of Bolivia. So your hookup would somehow involve Bolivians. I think that's, that's less rare. It's usually a traveler to traveler thing. And I don't know why, but people don't, at least people out of their twenties don't talk about it as much. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably true. Although I will say, uh, that technology has sort of risen to the occasion, whether or not people talk about it. technology has risen to the occasion or sunk to the occasion. <laughs> Sorry. There's a lot of back and forth in my head right now. Um, where I was at a conference this last, you know, this last week and was talking about the podcast to this one woman who, 
has a lot of great different talents, uh, you know, skydiving and doing great videos and all these sort of sort of things. And we got to talking about it. And, and I said, well, you know, what would you do on a show like mine? She says, well, I could basically tell you about Tinder around the world. Hmm. And, I, <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, technology like Tinder, which is basically – for getting one night stands and other you know kinds of hookups is not just America. It's around the world and has probably changed yet another dynamic uh, because it isn't just going to the bar and trying to meet somebody. It's trying to meet somebody in an entirely another country. And this is a new outlet that didn't exist before. So whether or not people are talking about it, I would love to have her on the show because Here's somebody who, you know, she travels by herself and she goes to another country and she's like, you know, I wonder if anybody else is hanging out here. And maybe it's a romantic hookup. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's just drinks. But this has changed uh, the dynamic of sex on the road for a younger generation, maybe even older. Yeah. And, and, and as, as usual, perhaps gay men are pioneers because I remember some of my students, I teach writing in Paris. I've been doing that for 15 years and they were using Grindr to meet local men years ago. Right. Right. And, and now right. T- Tinder, which is sort of straight people's Grindr uh, and, and, and Bumble and other apps. Um, this dynamic has been happening enough so that if you're a straight guy in a city, a lot of the local women's profiles will say, yeah, I don't want to be your tour guide. <laughs> and, and I've talked to, the, to enough people to know that, that a lot of the straight men's uh, profiles literally do say, hey, ladies, here I am. I, I know this city really well. So I think that that has, that has lent another layer uh, to, to, the, to the sexual or romantic dynamic of travel uh, in a way that can be interesting or insipid depending on how you look at it. But um, – Let's let's like let, let's uh, zoom out and go big picture uh, for a second because you're you know you're talking about the church of travel and and also like the way we talk about travel sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and, and so like during your podcast you have a few initiatives like you roll a dice a seven sided dice uh, and have people talk about the seven deadly sins or you ask them to to differentiate between Vegas and and, and Disney. And so how do we go about cracking through this, this veil of cliche that we often use to talk about travel? Well, I, I think it's one of the, uh, I mean, the, the kind of things I do on the show that are formula uh, are, are total gimmicks, but they're based in something deeper. So you're, you know, the seven-sided dice, actually I decided to use a regular five-sided dice because the seven-sided one uh, looks like something out of Dungeons and Dragons, and it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell what the number is sometimes because you're not sure what side is up. But also, I wanted to eliminate anger, uh, anger or rage from mm. the Seven Deadly Sins because that was going to be a less likely one for people to actually be able to tell a story about. The idea is you roll the dice, whatever number comes up corresponds on my list to one of the six of Seven Deadly Sins, and I say okay. Let's say, for instance, it's gluttony. I ask the guest, what is your favorite? Well, not even what your favorite is. What's the city in the world or destination in the world that you believe either best exemplifies that deadly sin or would be a place you'd want to indulge in? And I'll tell you, that actually came from a whole deeper thing where one of the books I was going to write, I mean – I mean, 15 years ago, I started working on this, was just going to be called The Seven Deadlies. And the idea was that there are cities around the world that most exemplify or is the best place to indulge in one of the seven deadly sins. And the idea was to write, you know, a book with beautiful photos, uh, magazine length articles, plus, you know, having a little bit of listicle on the side of what are some of the runner ups for each place that you actually pick kind of the winner. You would have to have uh, you would have to have some obvious ones, but you would also have to make sure to pick some non-obvious ones and you have to actually go to these places and do these things and talk to these people. But that that dice thing was just an outcropping of that because every time I talked about this concept, I would ask people, you know, what's your place for for uh, 
uh, what's your place for lust? What's your place for greed? What and and everybody has a different idea of what greed means or what lust means. I mean, Pam Mandel told this great story. Uh, she had lust, and she had this great story about uh, being in Cambodia and totally, totally visually lusting after uh, these beautiful monks, these beautiful you know Buddhist monks that they have there, huh. and. Uh, she, she told this story, and I said, well, did anything come of this? And she's like, no, 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 nothing happened, nothing happened. But but I had to keep telling myself to stop looking, <laughs> you know. And so her in her definition, that was, that was where she went to when she talked about lust. And what I find is that it, like almost any gimmick like it, gets to somebody's story that they didn't really think of before. They didn't really think of it as a story unless you take it out of the context of travel and put it into some other context, in this case – the seven deadly sins. Um, so you, I, I think the other thing, to, the only other thing to add to that is uh, some of the questions I'm asking in what I call the lightning round are intended. Some of the questions are intended to make you not really think, but to just answer. It's like a, you know, word association type of thing almost. Although the lightning round is rarely ever lightning because Somebody will say something and you go, oh, I have to have the explanation behind that. I mean, one of one of our questions, it's all binary questions. It's either this, that. Uh, one of our questions is, you know, which is worse on a plane, snakes or babies? And, uh, you know, another one is uh, zip-off convertible pants. Are they a modern convenience or a sign of the apocalypse? You know, things like that. And you, you get people to laugh, you get the guests to laugh just by the questions, but then they think about it for a second, then they'll, they'll say, you know, I never really wondered about that before. So one of the questions, and I'll ask you a question right now, Rolf. So Las Vegas, Rat Pack or Liberace? Rat Pack for sure. But again, I'm oh. going to make this into a longer non-binary question. I've never had a good time in Las Vegas. And I think that the real Las Vegas in in the U.S. is New Orleans. I think that that's always been the place where what happens there stays there. Um, sure. And, and I've had just countless delightful times in New Orleans, but never in Vegas. And I'm sorry, Vegas tourism people, but it just hasn't happened. I've been there six or seven times. I, I, I default Rat Pack, but I have yet to really enjoy myself. So I'm sorry, Spud, for that long answer. No, no, no. And that's that's actually what's supposed to happen during this is that – uh, I get a I get a answer from you that makes you reveal something about yourself and about travel because you weren't really thinking as much about travel as how to answer the the question. Uh, there's a there's a funny short story. I'll try to keep it short about Vegas and you know whether or not you love it or hate it. You probably remember well uh, the great editor from National Geographic Traveler Keith Bellows. Sure, yeah, and. This is a guy who was widely considered at the time probably the premier, you know, king of, of editors in the country at least. And uh, sort of a gruff exterior, but really well-traveled, really brilliant guy. But I go to a conference in Vegas one time, and I see him there at the opening night reception. And I go over and say, yay, you know, hey, Keith, it's great to see you, man. And and, you know, he shakes my hand, but it just looks really uncomfortable. And we are in, at this moment, we are in the steakhouse that's owned by the former mayor of Las Vegas, who basically was, uh, I think the phrase was, the barrister to the butchers. This is the guy, Oscar, uh, I forget his last name, but he was the guy who basically was the lawyer for most of the mob. And now he owns a steakhouse, or at least I think his wife owns a steakhouse, and so I go up to Keith, you know, we, we have our hellos, but he still looks really uncomfortable. I say, what's wrong, man? And he says, I've never been to Vegas before. And this is one of the most well-traveled, you know, uh, editors and writers I've ever met. And he had never been to Vegas before because he was more of that, you know, cultural traveler. He wanted to learn about other cultures. He wanted to go out and explore a different side, a more natural side of the world, a less commercial side of the world. And I said, Keith, here's the deal. Pretend you're in Borneo and that you're observing the local culture, not to, not to necessarily indulge in it, but as, as an observer who isn't 
clear about their very bizarre uh, rituals and and cultural mores. And he looked at me and said, oh, I can do that. <laughs> it was like the, the guy who hate, hated the concept of even being in Vegas. You know what? And to simplify what I told him, you, you just go and be a people watcher. I swear to God, I love going to Vegas, if only to be a people watcher. Now, it doesn't necessarily restore my faith in humanity, but uh, I still love people watching. The only other place that I, I love that's like that is, as you said, New Orleans. Everybody tells me, oh, my God, what would you – I don't go anywhere near Bourbon Street because, oh, that's just so – it's all full of tourists and drunks. And I'm like, you know what? I go to Bourbon Street because I – and keep in mind, New Orleans is my favorite city in the whole world, which says something because I live in San Francisco. Uh, I go for different reasons. I'm a musician. I play early New Orleans jazz. You know, I get to sit in places, stuff like that. But I still go to Bourbon Street just for the people watching because it is a different culture. It is a different uh, a different way of life. And even if it's foreign to me, uh, it's something that I want to observe just as if I were going to you know, some remote island in the South Pacific and observing the local cultures there. That's a healthy way to think of a place like New Orleans because there can be, and I, and I know this is something that you aim to tackle, you know, the whole idea of travelers versus tourists and, and cool people versus, you know, the automatons who go to the places where they're supposed to go. But I'm also a fan of the French Quarter. Um, and I think that New Orleans, there's always been sort of a hipster contingent in New Orleans that just that they absolutely hate the French Quarter, but it's usually people who aren't from New Orleans. Like New Orleanians will say, "Yeah, I don't go to the French Quarter," but it's the people from from Brooklyn or Portland who will go and really, really put their anti French Quarterness on their sleeves. And right. one of my favorite stories um, from New Orleans is actually throwing a bachelor party for my friend Mike in New Orleans twelve years ago, mm-hmm. and and I got a house right in the heart of the quarter, is like on Orleans Street. And this is a mistake, but it turned out to be a delightful mistake. I, I decided to just throw a bachelor party a week before his wedding. Had no idea what was happening in New Orleans at the time. Well, this little ritual of straight American manhood just happened to coincide with Southern decadence, which is when, oh God, God. which, which is when 30,000 <laughs> 30, gay men go to the quarter, go to the French quarter of New Orleans. The, the, the center of the party was about two blocks from the house I'd rented. And it was the most delightful time. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certain there's a, a variation of this. Like it's a straight guy's nightmare, but basically, we walked through the quarter for three days, and we were like the only sla- the only straight guys in, in in the quarter, and hence, like we were the, like the best looking straight guys there. And there were like nine bachelorette parties that were excited at first because there was all these handsome guys in the quarter, but eventually were sort of in tears because <laughs> nobody was interested in them. And so we just had, and, and of course the gay guys were great, you know, um, they were not really interested in us, but very, very accommodating to, to, to our shufflings around the French quarter. And it was sure that, that experience would not have happened had I not rented a place in the middle of the quarter to throw a bachelor party that basically we got the complete opposite of what we thought we would get. And it was the most memorable bachelor party in the French quarter ever. One, one of your binary questions and that I'm curious about is has to do with the mile high club. I, I forget exactly what it is. Um, but I'm curious. It, it, it's basically, it's just basically mile high club, sexy or gross. Okay. That's pretty much it. My question might be, does the, does the Mile High Club exist anymore? And, and the reason I point that out is that years ago I wrote, back when Yahoo News had a travel section, I wrote a column about the death of the Mile High Club that wasn't really about the death of the Mile High Club. It was basically, the point of the article was about how planes are flying buses. You know, there's nothing sexy about planes anymore. Um, and so I wrote right. this, and that, that was my point, that I basically said, you know, in, in the 1960s, maybe the 1970s, maybe the 1980s, sex in a plane sort of had this mystique. But now sex in a plane is sort of like sex in a greyhound, right? And, and Right. And, and, and so I had actually a lot, a lot of people who wrote in and said, do you have any empirical evidence that the, the Mile High Club is dead? And it's like, well, that wasn't my point. But it, it actually made me wonder, hmm, is, is that a thing? Do people put up do people in the age of flying buses when when bathrooms aren't necessarily clean is that even a thing do you have a sense for this i 
my sense would be, and this is all anecdotal uh, or secondhand or thirdhand, uh, is that the Mile High Club has moved farther forward in the plane. Hmm. So in other words, uh, now that you have almost everybody, once airlines discovered that their biggest business was going to be business class and charging people you know, five, six, seven times for a business class seat, what they're charging people for coach, uh, you have a whole lot more expanded business class, first class, whatever you want to call it. And nearly all of it has a, has a lay flat component to it. And like I said, purely anecdotal and second and third hand is that uh, because there are times on, say, a flight from here to Asia, where there are almost no flight attendants because they're required to take a certain break at some point, and almost all of them do. They might leave one on duty. Uh, the others actually have their own cabin that they all go up to and, and sleep in. There are times in that business class where you could definitely get away with, uh, get away with having a tryst of sorts, um, or at the very least, a healthy makeout session uh, that <clears throat> that I think you can get away with, and probably still happens, I believe. But you're right; the the bathrooms have been downsized to it would be like trying to have you know set a threesome in a telephone booth. <laughs> uh, it just it, it would. And for those of you kids at home who don't know what a telephone booth is, ask your parents. Anyway, anyway, my what I think was funny is. Um, I, I love trains, and uh, for 50-plus years, there was a service um, called the Reno Fun Train, and it was a chartered service from the East Bay of San Francisco Bay Area up to Reno, up through the mountains, and it was only during the, during the winter. And it's wonderful because it was a moving block party. They had an entire room with a band, one car with a band and a dance floor. They had a piano bar car. They had a smoking car, which toward the end of its service was probably the only public transportation you could take where you could smoke on board. Um, and it would take nine hours. You could also bring your own booze, and people would not only bring their own booze, but they'd decorate their area of, of the train. It was a rolling block party. It was wonderful. But when I did a story about it in 2006, I think, uh, the, the woman who ran this particular, uh, this particular thing, it was a, there, was a, there was a travel agency that was responsible for running, making all the arrangements and running the Reno fun train. And she just happened to offhand uh, mention about the clickety-clack club. Yeah. And, and, I thought, and I thought that was kind of funny. Because the, the bathrooms in trains are much larger. They have to be handicapped accessible. So they're, they're wider doors, wider everything inside. There's some actual space. And apparently there was a phenomenon called the clickety-clack club on trains. Because, you know, you have that nice whole rolling movement and everything like that. And uh, because I put that in the paper, um, on the Reno Fun Train, they had to put signs on all the doors that said only only one person at a time in the restroom. Uh, solely, because somehow I managed to change the dynamic of this train <laughs> by pointing out that people are having sex in the bathroom. So, yeah, it's uh, it depends on your mode of transportation. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, you, you made that joke about uh, phone booths. You know, young people ask their parents what a phone booth is. I would describe a phone booth as... It's sort of like an airplane toilet, but three times as big, right? Um, right, exactly. <laughs> because airplane toilet toilets are so small. That That's funny, too, about just like influencing things. You know, in another podcast, we talked about how people, they've closed um, Maya Beach on Copipi Lay now because of the 20 years ago, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Beach, made it so popular with tourists that they can't do. So in your own small way, you were sort of the Leonardo DiCaprio of the clickety-clack club, is that you put an idea in people's heads and they had to, they had to preempt it somehow. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid. Sorry, people. I, I apologize. I would not have said it had I known it would uh, cramp your style. I'm curious to know, as we sort of wind down here, what else sticks in your craw? What else do you find yourself coming back to 
in the face of travel writing cliches or travel cliches. A funny, a funny observation that you made in one of your podcasts is how you want to do the Camino de Santiago, but you want to do it in a Bentley with a bunch of caviar, right? So yes, <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. And I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody, but. Uh, I've, I've heard so often, and once again, the Camino de Santiago thing is, is not only a religious pilgrimage, it's a church of travel pilgrimage. It's one of those things that you cannot be anything but reverent about. And the only thing time anybody ever gets any humor out of this is when they talk about how exhausted they are and how they got blisters and how they, they ate terribly. And they get the humor of the absurdity of the situation, but they're not even looking for humor. I've never read Community Santiago story that I thought was was funny or somehow engaging in a way other than, you know, I walked and I walked and I walked. And maybe I'm not reading the right people, but all that made me think. Uh, and and I, I blame some of this on uh, Andrew McCarthy who, uh, you know, the actor who became a travel writer at some point. And another podcast and because, guest. Another podcast guest. And he, he no doubt uh, told how he got into uh, travel writing, which was because of the Camino de Santiago. He learned, you know, that's where he sort of fell in love with travel. And he had an epiphany, just this moment where he had an epiphany. And, and well, as it turns out, when he was getting into, he was starting to have a lot of success with travel writing. Just happened to be about the same time that people were asking him to speak about it a lot, all at events that I was going to. So I actually got to hear the, this particular speech about it eight times over the course of about two years. And uh, even so much so that he called me out on it a couple of times. He said, now, I know Spud Hilton's heard this a couple of times, but, and then, he, and then he'd go on with it. Well, it was one of those times that I'm sitting there listening again to the epiphany of Camino de Santiago, and I'm going, you know what? Give me a friggin' Bentley or whatever car is is the most luxurious symbol of luxury excess, and we're gonna we're gonna put a big old picnic table and cloth napkins in the back and chairs, and we're gonna every so often wherever the road sort of comes up near where the path is. And we're just going to pull over to the side, get out all the stuff, and sit there and you know basically drink Prosecco and eat cheese and caviar and maybe even some, uh, some roasted chicken or something like that. And just sit there and watch these bedraggled people go by. And part of the point is, and it didn't really have a point, it was just a funny thing in my head, but eventually I decided it should have a point, uh, Part of that point is my way of going is just as valid as yours. Hmm. My way is anybody who tells you that theirs is the only way to travel is full of crap. Uh, it's something that I've found with the whole tourist versus traveler thing. And I know you guys have hit on this a number of times, uh, the tourist versus traveler thing. I have a little bit of a different take on this than most people, uh, which is – I think the whole tourist versus traveler thing is a snooty way of, of one group of people who want to feel better about themselves or they want to feel superior. What I do is I set all of that aside and I say all travel is on a scale of leisure to discovery. So basically sometimes you want to be in that temple in Bhutan and you want to smell the incense and you want to touch, put your fingers up against the prayer wheels and give them a spin. Sometimes you want to be in Rome and go down that, that tiny little dark alley and find this great little you know, pub that, uh, where nobody speaks English at all, but they're willing to you know, give you some limoncello or whatever. And, and, and that's wonderful discovery. And you know what? Sometimes you just want to sit on a damn beach and wait for somebody to bring you a drink with an umbrella in it. And all of that is okay. It's just that one is on the leisure end of the spectrum and the other is on the discovery end of the spectrum. But at the end of the day, all travel is somewhere on that sliding scale. Because if your trip is entirely discovery, holy crap, you're probably boring and exhausted. But if your thing is entirely, entirely leisure, you're probably shallow and probably also bored. Everything is somewhere in between. And the sooner we get over 
having judgmental terms about how other people travel and just decide that everybody travels slightly differently on this scale, sooner we get over that crap, the better our lives will be. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Spud Hilton's podcast, The Inappropriate Traveler, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And if you have insights or your own stories of inappropriate travel, please feel free to share them with me at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.